0: So I'm just going to pray and then we'll get started, okay? Uh, Lord, I just pray that your Holy Spirit would anoint um, this time for your glory and for um, our good in you. God, I pray that, that you would be lifted up. You would be exalted. I pray that your word would nourish, guard, tenderize and create life in our hearts. God, thank you so much for Jesus Christ that you sent out of your heart of love to be our atoning sacrifice, to take upon himself all of our sins so that we could be reconciled to you, a just and holy God who must punish sin, but who at your core loves sinners and you found a way in your son to be both holy and merciful and forgiving, to make an accounting for sin, which you must do in your holy character, and yet be merciful and kind and tender to sinners who you love, because it the core of your character is love. And so we thank you, God, for Jesus Christ. And in his name, Lord, I pray that you would bless and protect the hearers of this message um, from my error or imperfections, that you would protect them and in ways that you want to speak and work through this message that you would fan into flame um, your spirit's power to do that to work powerfully through it and to grow a good seed uh, to protect and nourish good seed to fruit and i pray this in jesus holy name amen um so uh, we're in a devoted series. You guys have probably heard that enough at this point, focused on Acts two, four, two, and these components that the first church enjoyed together that are the hallmarks of every church since, which are uh, the apostles teaching, the message of the gospel, uh, prayer, fellowship with one another, um, and living together in, in the breaking of bread and the Lord's supper and in the sharing of life together. Um, and, Last week, we, we focused on a passage in particular in this passage of John 15, I'm going to read John 15, 12 through 17 to you uh, to hear the particular verse that I want to focus on today in its context. This is my command, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain, so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give you. This is my command that you love one another. There's so much in that passage. We, we, we looked at that passage many weeks ago when we focused on the prayer aspect of our life together. Um, I'm going to focus on the bookends, which is summed up in the first verse that I read today, this is my commandment that you love one another, just as I have loved you. And that finishes this particular passage when Jesus says in 17, this is my command that you love one another. And in between, Jesus talks about his friendship with the disciples. He talks about the power of prayer. And both of those things are towards an end in this particular passage that we would love one another. And and last week, as we looked at that, I, I sought to Help us consider whether we're too prone to too quickly breeze through and minimize when Jesus says the phrase, as I have loved you, and that we move too quickly to try to pick up, pick up the weight of love one another. And and so, you know, that was the point of last week, that, that when we too quickly do a drive-by on as I have loved you, and we really don't consider how Jesus has loved us, that it, it leaves us empty eventually. It leaves us trying to carry a load without either the power we need or even the understanding really of what it is we're trying to replicate when he says, love one another as I have loved you. And so if you didn't hear that message, I just, it's its really a piece with this message. So I just want to appeal to you to, to go online and, and, and listen to that message. But this Sunday, I want to move a little bit more into the love one another part and reflect on what that means for us as God's people together, because it's a together passage. It's love one another. Um, So first, though, I want to set the table a little bit by by setting up an illustration. Okay, so I am legendary in my own mind and in the mind of anyone who knows me really, really well for losing things and missing things. Um, I'm getting a tiny bit better, like just a tiny bit better. But for much of my life, like my wallet and my phone, they, they might as well have been decorated in, in camouflage skin. You know, I, try as I might to put them in the same place, uh, day after day, I have this incredible ability to lose them almost on a daily basis. For the sake of of keeping my marriage together God has blinded the eyes of my wife to the absolute inanity of, of this problem in me. And he's actually given her a miraculous gift of compassion about this area. Like, I'm not kidding. I will literally have lost my wallet or my keys for the 10th time in four days. And, and at each time I'll say, Jen, I can't find my keys. And she'll say, literally, literally, it's almost like a, a, a token phrase she'll say, that's so weird. I mean, and, and she means it like every time, like, if you know my wife, you know, she doesn't, she's not a sarcastic person. And so like, I'm just, then when she says that, I just feel released of the guilt, the condemnation. And I'm like, yeah, it's so strange, isn't it? That like, because <laughs> it's not so weird. It's exactly what should happen. Right. In fact, nothing is more illustrative of, of my inanity in this area than When I have, and I have done this, this is something that you only see in like movies and TV shows, but maybe you've experienced that time to time, but, but on multiple occasions, I believe I have hunted with passion and hunted with desperation in search of sunglasses that I need urgently that are literally on my head as I'm, as I'm looking for them. And and so, and it's happened with phones that are in my pocket. I mean, glasses are, are literally on my head. And if I was aware of what was going on, on the, the sensory feeling skills cells on my scalp, I would, I would know they're on my head and, and I'm, I'm wearing them and I'm running around the house, looking through drawers and behind floors and under shirts, you know, and, and they're on my head. And at some point I realized Oh, wait a second, I'm, I'm feeling the glasses on my head. And so, so I'm very able to, to miss the obvious, to miss the obvious, right? And, and so, and you might feel it coming. This is my transition. It, it might be not surprising to know that I am, I am very aware of my ability to miss the obvious, not only in my personal affects, but also in scripture, In fact, I think that I'm not alone in this, missing the obvious that's right there in Scripture. In fact, I think the most poignant and most powerful and most obvious truths in Scripture often get drowned out uh, because we've grown used to them in a fleshly way. We've grown kind of calloused and deaf to them or or because in our human weakness, we just can't grasp and understand the truth. And the beauty that's there at that point for lack of spiritual sight and the power that we need from god to see what's right in front of us um and 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 that's really just i think a, a problem for for every believer that there are things that are right in your face obvious and and when god opens our eyes to them we find ourselves saying and i'm sure this has happened to you oh my goodness I have heard that all my life. It's It's been right in front of me. I, I would have even said intellectually, I, I believe that. But now I can see that I, I never really saw it the way I see it now. It's like the blinders are off. The biggest way this happened to me was when I, I first came to Christ in 1992. I had heard that Jesus had died for my sins my entire life that I could remember. But One day in August of 1992, God opened my eyes to really see that that really meant what it said, that all of my sins, past, present, future, were on Jesus Christ. And so it's very possible for us to see something in Scripture, know something our whole lives, and yet not really grasp it the way that it's supposed to be grasped. And so this morning, I just want to take care because what I'm going to bring to you is not going to shock your ears. It's not going to be new to you. But I want to take care that, that we don't, as far as it depends upon us and, and through the Spirit of God, we don't miss what's staring us right in the face. We don't miss something that's as close as the nose on our face. It can be right in front of you, but you're not aware of seeing it, right? And so here's this duh, unsurprising, obvious truth that I'm praying through the Holy Spirit, he might make alive to us in a powerful way uh, for the first time or for the 400th time. Um, but, but here's what it is. When Jesus says, as I have loved you, so you too must love one another. I believe this is what Jesus means. To obey Jesus' command, to love one another as Jesus loved us, means that we have to care for one another's spiritual health to obey Jesus command to love one another as Jesus loved us means we have to care for one another's spiritual health Th- this is not the only way that we're to care for one another James in his a letter he he makes it clear for instance that for a brother to say to another brother or sister God bless you and leave them starving or naked uh, is to practice a fraudulent, empty religion that God despises. But, But at the core of what it means to be a Christian, when we look at what Jesus says, when he says, as I have loved you, at the core of what it means to be a Christian and to belong to his church and to be a church, to be this church means that love one another, We must care for one another's spiritual health as Jesus cares for our spiritual health. Let me try to explain what I mean by going back to last week's message for a second. Remember that last week we considered that Jesus loves us and we looked at three primary ways he loves us. He died for our sins on the cross, undergoing unimaginable suffering to reconcile us to God. Number two, he never leaves us, but he comes to be with us forever through the power of his indwelling spirit coming into our spirits and uniting with our spirits so that his presence, his heart, his mind, and his power are there for us to keep us walking with God. And third, we, we consider the way he loves us through his intercession. He is now ascended to the right hand of God. Physically, he left this earth in some metaphysical reality that's impossible for us to grasp by right now, and he is, as a human, at the Father's right hand, interceding for us to keep us safe to the very end of our lives. Now let's come back to our passage in John 15:2, "As I have loved you, so you must love one another." So how does Jesus love us? Well, very specifically to Jesus, he dies for our sins. He comes inside our spirit and lives inside our very spirits. He ascends physically, metaphysically to the father's right hand. And there he sits interceding for us. So is that what he means? Like, are you and I going to die for one another's sins? Are, are you and I going to unite, put our spirit, pour out our spirit on each other? Are you and I going to ascend to the Father's right hand in the place of highest authority and intercede? Right? No, like none of us are going to do that. None of us can do that. So w- what is he talking about? Well, certainly there are aspects of dying for one another that, that come to pass in the Christian life uh, with martyrs, dying for other believers to protect them laying down their lives for each other. But I don't think that's, that's principally what Jesus is talking about. When we go back and think about what Jesus was doing in dying for our sins, in coming into our hearts to indwell us through the power of the Holy Spirit, in ascending to the Father's right hand, the thing that ties all those activities together is this. They were all ways that Jesus brings us to God and keeps us safe in God. Dying for our sins, entering to our spirits, interceding for us at the Father's right hand. There are all ways that Jesus provides what we needed to come to the Father, to stay with the Father, and finally to be forever safe in the Father's hands. There are always that Jesus sacrificially cared for our spiritual warfare, welfare, welfare. There were all ways that Jesus sacrificially cared for our spiritual welfare. And that, my brothers and sisters, is the obvious thing that's staring us in the face this morning. When Jesus says, as I have loved you, so you must also love one another. This is my commandment. Of all the things that he means when he says that, he means for us to care for one another's spiritual warfare because that's at the core of how he has loved us. He means for us to do what we can do as a body, as a local church, to see that we're all reconciled to God, to see that we all stay with God, to see that we all make it across the finish line into Jesus' arms. That is at the center of your life calling, That is at the center of your life calling as a believer in Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian. It's not the only thing it means, but it's at the center of what it means to be a Christian. And it's at the very center of what it means to be a church family. To obey Jesus' command is to love one another as Jesus loved us. And that means we have to care for one another's spiritual health. And listen, when, when we see this kind of obvious truth and it really comes alive to us, so much about the church that's written in the Bible starts to take on this kind of cohesion and this clearer sense that we did not see before, right? Like, and, and here's where I want to pivot now. I want to consider several scriptures about the church, about our lives with each other. And I want to see how they fit in this thesis, that to obey Jesus' command to love one another means that we are to care for one another's spiritual health. Look at Colossians 3, for instance. I'm going to read you Colossians 3, 12 through through 15. This is a famous passage on life, body, unity, one anothering. The whole context of this passage is how we're to treat one another from beginning to end. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which you indeed were called in one body, and be thankful. So I want to take each component part of this passage and just consider it in light of this this idea that to love one another as Christ loved us is to care for one another's spiritual welfare at the core. So Paul starts out in verse 12. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy, beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against one another, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. So why do we treat each other with kindness, humility, compassion, gentleness, Why do we forgive one another as the Lord forgave us? Because obviously you can see the motif in there. That is how Jesus loved us. And that is his command that we would love one another as he loved us. But but why do we do that? Are, Are we just like, I do what Jesus does. I do what Jesus does. What's the purpose of doing what Jesus does? In all these things, we remind one another, this is who Jesus is. This is what it means to experience his grace. This is the place to be. Kindness, gentleness, compassion. This is the heart of Christ. It is what it means to be with him, is to be with someone who is gentle and compassionate and forbearing and forgiving. And and when we put these things on in love for one another, it protects us from a coldness and a blindness to who God is, that's soul-destroying. It protects us from dividing with one another in a way that hollows out our relationship with God and cancels our, our ability to see Him. And, and that is of utmost importance, that we see Jesus. Seeing Jesus, for instance, in, in 2 Corinthians, seeing Him with the eyes of our heart is the way by which we are transformed into His image continually through our lives. And so what Paul is saying here is not just be good little boys and girls. He's saying, show Jesus to one another and how you live for one another, because that is how you are going to stay alive spiritually. That is how you are going to flourish spiritually. Look at verse 15, let the peace of Christ, or, or hear it at least, because you probably don't have it pulled up. This is what he says in Colossians three fifteen. I just read this, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called into one body and be thankful. Let the peace of Christ, what he's talking about there is the peace that Jesus won and brought to you between you and God through his shed blood on the cross. He's not starting. First of all, I believe with emotion, he's talking about the objective truth that Jesus has reconciled you to God in the cross. And he's saying, let that peace rule in your hearts. In other words, another word for that piece is to let it umpire or referee, let it judge, let it act as sort of a, a, a police person, letting in what's right and protecting you from what's bad. So when condemnation comes, the peace of Christ says, no, 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 you may not come here. Jesus died for that. Every sin, every accusation, Jesus died for that. When when the the, the idea comes in, Jesus is not really God. Jesus is, is a great teacher. No, the peace of Christ says that he was God the Son who shed his blood for me and reconciled me to God. He is my God. He, that thought cannot come here. Particularly in Colossians, this peace of Christ was the truth of Christ that was to protect them from believing that Jesus was not enough for their acceptance before God. A theme we see continually in Scripture and a theme that continues to attack us that Jesus is not enough to reconcile you with God. And Paul says, no, let the peace of Christ, let it guard that truth. Let it protect you. Let it rule your heart. Let it oversee and guard your heart. But then see where he goes with this. He says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called into one body. To which indeed you were called into one body. And, and what he's doing here, and he goes on to, to say in verse 14, beyond all these things put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. So th- the fruit of peace in this passage, one body, unity, one body, unity, isn't your individual walk with God alone. It is that, but it is your individual walk with God lived out in community your peace with God, your belief in the gospel, your holding on to the gospel, it becomes central to the unity of your relationships in Christ. It becomes central to the harmony and the love between you and other people. Um, there's a great quote I have in here, and I, I just, Lord, please help me find it. Um, I, I can't find the quote, <laughs> but, but the quote was basically saying this, and it was from the Pulpit Commentary. It was saying that the peace of Christ that rules in our heart is the fuel for the unity that connects our hearts together. The peace of Christ that rules in our heart is the fuel for the unity that connects our hearts together. It's that the peace of Christ in the gospel in Colossians 3 is this one body making power. It it is power to protect our sense of unity and oneness and harmony around the gospel. So you're holding on to Jesus Christ as your savior and you holding on to the gospel becomes the means by which you are filled with peace. Emotionally, it becomes the means by which you have power to love other people because you don't feel completely empty and on the ropes. It becomes the peace that that allows you to be in one body functioning with one another. Uh, Let me, let me, this is where he keeps going. This will hopefully become clear as we go to verse 16, for instance. Verse 16 says, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. This is the very next verse. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. Let the word of Christ richly dwells within you. That's another euphemism for All of Jesus' words, but particularly the message of Jesus in his death and resurrection to reconcile us with God. He says, let it dwell within you with all wisdom and teaching and therefore teaching and admonishing one another. So in this conception of Colossians 3, why do we let the word of Christ richly live in our hearts? Why do we then try to teach one another with wisdom and admonish one another with wisdom from that truth of Jesus Christ? Well, it's, it's obvious. It's right in our faces because this is caring for one another. This is how we guard and protect and nourish each other's spiritual welfare. This is how we love like Jesus did. We protect and care for one another's spiritual welfare. In verse 17, whatever you do in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Why do we do what we do in the name of the Lord? Which, which basically means we do what we do in keeping with his character. Why do we do that? Well, again, look at the broader context of this passage. It's about body life. It's about unity together. We do that because this is how we glorify God, right? This is how we, we point to him. We say who he is. And when we project him to one another, we allow one another to see Jesus. We allow one another to be nourished by the vision of christ as we see him in each other it gives us hope that he's real it gives us hope that god really sent him as jesus talks about in john 17 and it protects and cares for our spiritual warfare welfare welfare sorry okay so i'm i'm gonna that was probably the the most um that was probably the most difficult passage to see this in these other passages i think are going to be a little bit easier to see uh hebrews 3 12 to 13, take care brethren and sister. This is Hebrews three, 12 to 13, take care brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today so that none of you would be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. I, I mean, this is, this is as obvious as it gets right. Why should we be careful that none of us corporately, not just you and God in your prayer closet, but that one another, why should you be careful to make sure that none of us has this terrible hardness that starts to grow against God? Why should we instead exhort one another at every opportunity as long as it is today, as long as we're still here on this earth and the door of grace is open to us? Why should we do that? Well, we have to do that because we're called to love each other as Jesus loved us. And this is what he did. This is what he does. He cares for our spiritual welfare. He keeps us from being fooled by the enemy with his truth. He keeps us becoming calloused and stubborn in our hearts by his forgiveness and his repeated His repeated proclamation of his forgiveness over us. And so this is another illustration, the most blatant one, that it it, it is... It is incumbent upon each of us to watch out for one another's spiritual welfare. Why should we do as James 5.16 says, confess your sins to one another and pray for each other that you might be healed? Because this is what it means to love each other as Jesus loved us. What did Jesus do except more than anything else, proclaim God's forgiveness to us and create a safe place for us to, to confess our sins to one who will not judge us and condemn us, but who will in tenderness forgive us and cleanse us. And so God says through James, do that for one another. Of course, I'm not talking about being a a priest and going to a confessional booth, but forgive one another and announce to one another that Christ has indeed vanquished that sin on the cross. Proclaim that forgiveness to one another. Be a safe community for people to unburden their hearts and their consciences and pray for one another. Why do we pray for one another? Because this is how Jesus cares for us. He intercedes for us before the Father's right hand. And so James says, dump your sins on one another. Be a safe place to be transparent and real with each other. And then pray for each other as you're discouraged. I mean, I hope you guys have experienced what I've experienced many times, which is that I've got a burden on my back because of ways that I'm not talking to my wife right, ways that I'm not serving the church right, something I just blew with my kid right, and I'm able to share that with somebody. And they pray for me. They remind me that Jesus forgives when I just am torn up about stuff. And for some reason, God has decided it's not going to be enough to just go into the prayer closet and deal with him. I'm going to have to share that with a brother or sister. They're going to have to hear me and see it in the light. And I'm going to be unburdened by that. And they're going to stand for Jesus, not be Jesus, but represent him saying, gosh, I hear that. I hear that. God forgives you. That sin cannot condemn you. You are not hiding that anymore. I confirm that you are, 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 are against that and are agreeing with God that that's wrong. Go in peace. And, and and it's just, it's a beautiful thing when we do that for one another, but it's not just beautiful. It's a command for us to do for one another. And we can think of the church more broadly in, in other kinds of formal institutions. Why do we baptize publicly? Why do we baptize people? It's to stand in Jesus' place and stay to the baptized person we witness and we celebrate your inclusion into our Savior. You are new in him, and you are one with us. Why do we do communion? Is it not to love as Jesus loves us by proclaiming the gospel that he proclaimed, and to do it together, and for the benefit of the whole gathered church, so that all of us commonly hear and share in the message of this redeeming blood, why, why are we commanded? This is one of the most clear ones I can bring to you this morning. Why are we commanded to do church discipline? Is church discipline, and, and, and for those of you who may understand, it, I'm referring to this passage in Matthew 18 where Jesus is talking about someone who is in serious unrepentant sin. Um, and you know, the classic illustration we use is, is a, a, a man who is cheating on his wife and he will not repent. Um, and so the church would take him through a process of appealing to him to stop and repent. And Jesus talks about doing that privately and doing that with a group. And then if he still won't repent, doing that with the whole church gathered and say, brother, you have to repent. And if he won't turn from that sin and seek help and seek, uh, and seek to walk in God's ways, then you say to the brother, you can't call yourself a Christian here anymore. You can't take communion with us. You can't live like this. And, and, and say that you are really a Christian. And that's what church discipline does. And what's the point of that, though? Is that to, like, make sure that we're not near sinners? <laughs> no, th- Jesus spent his life with tax collectors and prostitutes. That's what he did. He went out to bring the message of God's reconciliation to people. But no, it, it, it is to say to the person, brother, we can no longer affirm that you belong to God until you turn back to God. Turn back to him. And the reason we do that is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5. He says that we do that so that his soul might be saved. Do you see that? The the whole point of church discipline is to care for the spiritual welfare of this person who's straying and living a lie and refusing to wake up. It is to care for their spiritual welfare. So I, I just want to say again, I want to call us to see the obvious truth here. Why are we called to be the body of Christ? Why are we called? Is it to like show up at a building at 10 a.m. on Sunday? You know, is it to sit down and listen to a sermon? Those things are, are I don't want to knock sermon preaching or else I wouldn't be doing this. That is how Jesus loved us, was proclaiming his word to us. But my point is that, that we are called to be the body of Christ of all reasons, Not less than to express his love to one another, to express his spiritual care to one another, to be a means of his spiritual nourishment and protection over one another. That's why we're called the body of Christ. What does it mean to be someone's body except to to do what their head says, to do what their mind says? We are to express who Jesus is to one another. That's what it means to be the body of Christ. It means other things, but it means that at the very center. That's what a body does. It acts in tandem with the mind that, that oversees it. And so we are to be Jesus expressions to one another. Why would we called His bride with, with Jesus at our head if we're not supposed to walk in tandem with His very purposes towards one another in love, to watch over, to care for, to nourish one another's spiritual welfare. Why would we be called the temple of God? Why would we be called the temple of God if we're not to be a community in which any one of us would encounter the very spirit of God through one another? All of this is why I'm saying of all the things it means when Jesus says, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. It must mean that we we seek to do for one another what Jesus did and does for us. And that at its core is to to see about our spiritual welfare. To protect, to watch, to nourish, to support one another's spiritual welfare. Now, a couple of quali- one qualification here. This does not mean that we all do it the same way all the time. It, 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 this will vary with our individual gifts, with our unique callings. Some of us have gifts in hospitality. Others of us don't have the same level of gifting in that. Some of us have gifts in administration and organizational leadership. Others of us don't have gifts that way. Some of us have gifts in prophecy, like like our our sister Kim. Others of us don't have that level, as far as we can tell, of prophetic gifting at this point. Some of us may be called to be pastors who do it as a means of daily vocation in a literal job like me. Some of us have gifts that are profoundly practical. And so we have roles that might be more akin to being deacons, to care for the, the material, physical needs of the church. But but listen, none of the passages, none of the passages that I went over this morning in Colossians, in James, in Hebrews, uh, none of those passages refer to any of those unique kinds of gifts and callings. None of them are directed at elders alone. None of them are directed at deacons alone. None of them are directed at women alone or men alone. Uh, So the implication is is that none of you... (laughs) None of you get to say, because I'm not a pastor, I don't need to watch over the souls of my fellow brothers and sisters. You may not do it as much as I'm called to do it, but you don't get to say that. None of you get to say, because I don't know the Bible as well as Donna might know the Bible, I don't have to try to counsel spiritually and encourage one another in spiritual things. Because... I'm not that smart, you know, and you don't get to say that. None of us get to say, because I'm, I'm, I'm not a care group leader, I don't have to try to counsel this person who's hurting or mourn with this sister who's grieving. I don't, I don't that's not my job. I, I, don't, I, I don't get to say, uh, because I'm not like a, a professional Christian counselor, I don't have to admonish my friend and gently try to appeal to him as he's walking away from God. No, what I, what I announced to you today, what I've read to you today from scripture, it's not for pastors alone. It's for you. It, it, it's your job as well as mine to care for the spiritual welfare of this church and God's people. My role is unique. It involves more time and responsibility. And as James says, soberingly, it involves a stricter judgment for those reasons. Uh, but in some measure and in different degrees, we are all responsible for one another We are all responsible for one another. Long ago, when the world had fallen apart after Adam and Eve rejected God in the garden and the first murder took place, when when the dawn of hatred for one another and forsaking one another and destroying one another had broken on this fallen world and Cain had murdered his brother Abel. He was asked by God to give an account for what he had done to his own flesh and blood. And do you remember what his response was when God asked him what had happened? Where was his brother? And Cain says to God, am I my brother's keeper? In this bitter, cynical, hateful indifference. Am I my brother's keeper? Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ has come to say to you and I with a resounding yes, yes, you are your brother's keeper. (laughs) I have been your keeper. You are to be one another's keeper. Jesus Christ has come and spilled his blood for you. He has put his spirit in you. He intercedes now at the right hand of God to tell you most resoundingly, I am your keeper, and you too now must be one another's keeper, brothers and sisters. So Jesus has reversed and undone this bitter lie of Cain and said, yes, we are each other's keeper. And when he said, as I have loved you, so you must love one another, he restored this sacred call that Cain had despised. And he put that call on each of our lives to be each other's keeper, to watch over one another's souls. As I have loved you, so you too must love one another. Care for one another's spiritual welfare. Folks, there's, there's lots more to say about this. Uh, some of you are, are hearing this and you might be worried that I'm trying to throw a, a bazillion things for you to do now. I, I'm not trying to do that. Some of you are up to your eyeballs in caring for one another. And, 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 and you might even be trying to care for too much and too many. And, and I just want to say to you, thank you. Thank you, thank you for trying to be faithful, to care for brothers and sisters in this church body. Um, and, and please don't give up. Please know that, that Jesus is pleased with your sacrificial posture and your attempts to love one another as he, have, he, has, he has loved you. Some of you have sort of one foot out and one foot in in this. And, and I hope that, that you'll be spurred a little bit by this this last couple of weeks and hopefully next week to 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 help you gladly get both feet in. Some of you are both are, are in a place where you're you're at the same time really hungry and desiring care and, and you're you're maybe not giving all the care that you could. And I hope to help you with both things, you know, last week today and, and as we move forward. Um, and and so next week I, I'm planning on engaging you with some more specific ways for carrying one another's spiritual welfare. And this is where we'll talk about things like why we do fellowship the way we do. And and, and I'm also going to, Lord willing, I'm also going to offer you next week an invitation to step into a commitment to one another in a particular way for a season, a commitment of fellowship, um, it's not necessarily anything new or dramatic. It's just a commitment to a relationship of discipleship care um, for, for a limited season. I'm going to talk to you about what that can look like next week. But, but mainly what I wanted to do today is just try to impress on you before we get into the practicalities, that this is a real thing, that this is something that God deeply wants from you, that he deeply wants you to be part of caring for the spiritual welfare of one another. And, 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 and I, I want you to feel not the guilt of that, but, but I want you to feel the seriousness of that, the clarity of that. And I want to leave you with hope in that. I want to leave you with hope in that, um, with one last word. In Psalm 133, King David is talking about fellowship. He's talking about unity between brothers and sisters around the things of the Lord in Psalm 133. And here's what he says at the beginning. He says, look! He says, Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Behold, look how good and pleasant it is when when people of God really come together around God. It is so good. It is so pleasant to be in that place. And then he talks about this in this strange language that would be really foreign to us, the idea that it's like oil, (laughs) running down the face, the head, and the beard of the priest. And I believe he's making an allusion there to the anointing of God over the intercessor of God, that the power of God is poured down in that place where brothers and sisters dwell together in unity. And, and I think it's clinched at the end of the psalm in Psalm 133. It's a very short psalm. When, when he concludes the psalm with this, He says, there, in that place, the place where brothers and sisters are dwelling together in unity, there, he says, Yahweh commanded the blessing, life forevermore. In that place where there's unity around the things of God, around the true God, there God commands blessing, and that blessing is life evermore. I remember years ago ago when we started going through troubles around 2011, 12, 13 with our our Sovereign Grace folks and then that bled into our church community folks. I I remember sort of at the front end of that, uh, I was gathered with Trav and Chris and I think Andrew. We were all praying in Chris's office and we were about to talk to the church about issues with SGM. And I, I remember feeling like God had grabbed the collar of my heart and grabbed me by the collar and brought me to his face in prayer and said, Albert, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity there. I command my blessing life forevermore. And I I felt in my spirit that the Lord was trying to deeply and lovingly and achingly caution me against jumping on bandwagons of disunity jumping on bandwagons of, of criticism and, and slander and judgment against other brothers and sisters in Christ, whether it was an SGM or in our church, I just felt this sobering cry from God's heart to say, I care so deeply about your unity. It, it, it has to be a fearful thing. It has to be a fearful thing to protect and to nourish. I care so deeply about it. And of course I, I don't know that we did a very good job in the following years of that. but, but I, I And we, we've seen such a, a honing down in some respects of our church. And, and I think one of the hallmarks of this season is, in many ways, we do feel a tenderness and a unity for one another. And, but I want to say to you, brothers and sisters, as we pursue this, as we pursue to care for it and nourish it and take care of it, God says, there, in that place, I command blessing. I command blessing, eternal life. I command my life. I don't think he's just talking about a, a a time, a length of time. I think he's talking about the quality of life that he brings to bear, that he commits to point to, that he commands be upon a place where real unity is being pursued, where real sacrificial love for one another around build upon the things and the truths of Jesus Christ that he can't help but command his blessing there in his life there. So I would just want to say as we as we try to pursue this, as we try to protect this, as we try to nourish this, we can expect God to command his blessing as he says in 133, Psalm 133, his blessing. We can expect him to to stir up and strengthen eternal life in us, the quality of of his presence being with us, right? The quality of of the Holy Spirit's presence among us. I think we can we can count on him bringing that to bear more and more here.